Anytime Fitness, we know that healthy doesn't happen on its own. But together, we can make healthy happen. With the right help, in the right ways. With coaching and workouts in the gym or virtually in your home. We'll give you a plan and the support you want to get you to your healthier place. Anytime Fitness, let's make healthy happen. Join Anytime Fitness for only $1 this January. Visit anytimefitness.com for more information. The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at lesliemarshallshow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. to set you free. Happy Friday. Uh, I just want to point out, because I've had some people um, email or post online, Leslie, are you drinking before or during your show? Because <laughs> they see me with a can. No, this is sparkling water. It's lime and watermelon flavored. And I'm not doing any product placements. So I'm not saying the name of the company, but no, I'm just drinking sparkling water. And then when I'm done, I will switch to Bloody Mary mix because I like tomato juice and there's no vodka in it. Um, although this weekend I feel I deserve a real bloody or <laughs> some kind of a cocktail uh, after the week and the amount of work uh, that I've had, but uh, it's a it's a good day uh, today, almost at the weekend. I'm really excited because in this hour we have back back one of my favorite guests. He's a personal friend. Um, we've become friends over the years, um, but he also does a great job. I love people that work hard. They're passionate about what they do, which our guest is. And they believe in what they do and they make a difference with what they do and are trying to do. And that's Scott Paul. Scott Paul is president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. The AAM is a partnership established by some of America's leading manufacturers and the United Steelworkers Union. And I want to point out the new head of OSHA is a, fo- a former uh, uh, management level uh, USW uh, union representative. So it's good to see the Biden administration is really caring about the uh, working class and the working people. For over a decade, Scott and AAM have cared about and continue to care about the working class, the working people, specifically with manufacturing. They've worked to make American manufacturing a top of mind issue for voters and for national leaders. And they've done it through effective advocacy, innovative research, and a savvy PR strategy. More than a pleasure to have back on the show, Scott Paul. Hey, Scott. Welcome back. It was great to be with you. Yeah, hey, happy hour. Uh, you know, I, I, I just want to say, I just mentioned this off the air, but I said I was going to say it on the air. I love that chair. And then you you told me it's not a chair, it's a love seat. But then you 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 started to tell me about it. Yeah, it's a something that my wife and I uh, bought just when we were married, which will, I guess will be 15 years this year. Um, but uh, from a Made in America furniture store in D.C. And so it's uh, it, it's a lot of fun. It's a little whimsical and uh, it supports American jobs. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I was going to give it. you some cocktail recommendations later on with American made spirits as well for for when you do when you can imbibe Leslie. <laughs> Actually, why don't we do that at the end of the show cuz there's people that need a drink whether they are yeah. whether they're QAnon members that said, "Huh? <laughs> it wasn't true." Um whether they're Trump supporters that are like, "I need a drink my guy lost," or whether they're Biden supporters like me that say, "I need a drink my guy won." Um a lot uh, I think a lot of drinking going on this weekend. We, we got uh, you covered. 
yeah. For, yeah, for one way or another. So yeah, let's touch upon that if we have time. Um, but let, let's talk about things that um, may uh, that are more important than drinking, certainly. <laughs> uh, President Biden was sworn in the other day, but now the real work begins. And some people, I think, were surprised that he got to work the first day. That's what he wanted to do, and he's got a lot to get done. As the 46th president of the United States, he had said in his uh, inauguration speech, quote, this is America's day, this is democracy's day, a day of history and hope of renewal and resolve through a crucible uh, for the ages. Now, we are in the midst of an extraordinary uh, crisis, right? We have a pandemic that's ravaged our entire country. Um, our economy has been left in uh, shambles. And uh, Joe Biden called for unity. I wanted to get your take on that, um, not necessarily from a political perspective, um, but from a worker's uh, perspective. Is is that possible to do? Do, do people do people buy it? And I just want to say, um, one of the things I have said on TV is Joe Biden can't unite us unless we you know, come along for the ride. You know, I mean, we have some, he can bring the horse to water. We have decided if we're going to drink it or not. But I, I just wanted to get your take on the unity because everybody seems to be weighing in on that. So why not have you weigh in as well? Yeah, Leslie, I'm glad you asked because I obviously lead an advocacy group, but I'm a citizen as well and have sons who watch all of this at home. And so I think all of us are looking forward to 2021. Um, and, you know, I live here in the D.C. area and we had some unwelcome guests a couple weeks ago who uh, mounted a violent uh, and unsuccessful insurrection to try to interrupt a democratic process. And so we have a we have a lot of healing to do uh, a, a, as a country. And we have a, you know, a pretty evenly divided Senate and a, a House of Representatives that is democratic, but just by a few votes. Um uh, and obviously, uh, Joe Biden, who probably has the biggest mandate of anybody coming in based on his electoral college tally. But you do have to bring people together. And so I think focusing on themes uh, that will uh, help to unify as much as possible uh, and also that will benefit all parts of the country um, is going to be helpful. And so I, I think just from the inaugural itself and seeing some actual working people like to be part of that celebration. I'm thinking of the of the firefighter who did the Pledge of Allegiance and mm -hmm. others. And so I think that that really sets the tone for, uh, for, for, for the future work to come. And then also focusing on early on, on some key priorities that he said he was gonna do on his first day or to get started on, but also to keep that focus on uh, getting us through the pandemic, um, and getting us onto the other side of it and helping us to not only recover from the economic trauma that we've experienced as a nation, but also in his own words, to build back better, to create a future economy where prosperity is more broadly shared, uh, where we have a diverse source of energy uh, renewable that will power our future and that we can have sustainable jobs and, and well-paying jobs, and that workers have a seat at the table uh, in, in these conversations. And so I think letting that out there like that was incredibly valuable. And so obviously the hard work is yet to come, uh, but I really thought that the opening days helped to set a very positive tone, uh, one where I think we can get 
Republicans, conservatives to yes on a lot of these issues because I, you know, who doesn't like American made uh, furniture or American made infrastructure? This is something where I think he can find a lot of common ground, uh, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican or from a rural state or an urban area. You know, it's interesting that you touched upon two points. Um, you must have read my mind. But one, one of the points that you touched upon is what happened uh, in your backyard uh, January 6th, that deadly insurrection, uh, not erection, uh, <laughs> as Majority Leader Schumer said earlier today. Uh, I mean, look, we're all human. I, I had to laugh uh, at it uh, at the week, uh, the four years that we've had. But in the wake of that deadly insurrection on the Capitol, no laughing matter, um, Joe Biden asked Americans to join together, to your point, uh, to fight the foes we face, anger, resentment, and hatred, extremism, lawlessness, violence, disease, joblessness, and hopelessness, with unity, we can do great things, important things. We can right wrongs. And then right after that, he says, we can put people not just back to work, but we can put people to work in good jobs. What in your position does that mean to you? Um, one, how unity does play into that. And two, um, you know, he specifically didn't just say put them back to work. We can put them back to work in good jobs. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree. And there's 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 a couple of things that lead into this and then flow from it as well. The things that lead into this, I think, are that many of the policies, certainly of the last four years, um, you know, the, the tax policies and what have you, definitely benefited a swath of America that was already well off and, and is even better off now um, because of the corporate tax cuts and the other the, the the other types of policies that were put into place. And then that combined with what we've seen through this first, you know, 10 months of the pandemic where we, we you know, America suffered profound losses, both in terms of, I think, you know, our, our, our daily lives were impacted, um, but particularly I think for a lot of vulnerable uh, frontline workers and service workers, just how exposed and voiceless they sometimes feel in their jobs and how much we depend on them. And we depend on them far better than we treat them. And, you know, it's one thing to say, God bless our frontline workers or our hospital workers. It's another to give them a raise, to give them a voice at work and to give them a seat at the table. And I think that's one of the messages that Joe Biden was delivering is that we have a brighter future, which is possible. You know, raising the minimum wage is going to have a far better impact for more Americans than a tax cut for the rich. You know, th that worker could now potentially buy a car or, uh, you know, or, or do, other, you know, spend more money in the community. Uh, and so I think all of that is really important. And I'm glad he set that tone from the very first moment. I, I am as well. We'll be back with Scott Paul. We'll be back with you. After this, don't go away. I'm Leslie Marshall. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at lesliemarshallshow.com. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. We are back 
Happy Friday. He is back as well. Scott Paul, who's president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. Uh, Scott, by the way, can be found on Twitter at Scott Paul AAM. And also follow uh, the AAM at Keep It Made in USA. The website is AmericanManufacturing.org. Scott, thank you for holding uh, welcome back. You had touched upon or you just mentioned, we didn't really go into uh, talking about in detail, and I'd like to a bit in this segment, um, the uh, initiatives that uh, the president would like to get in his first year of office, actualizing his Build Back uh, Better plan, aiming for the investment of more than $2 trillion in infrastructure, clean energy, uh, and man- American manufacturing. And he wants to do that to sponsor the growth of at least 5 million new jobs in manufacturing and innovation. Now, that should make everybody happy, but especially you and your position at the AAM. Um, One, we've talked about this before, Scott. Infrastructure is a bipartisan agreed issue. We have D-minus ratings on our roads and bridges. This is a win-win because we can improve um, those roads and bridges and put people back to work, and then it would help both Democrats and Republicans when they go home and run for re-election with their constituency. Is it possible truly this time around, and is Build Back, is that Build Back Better plan a, a good way to go about it? Yeah, th- thanks, Leslie. I, I think that we have a tremendous uh, generational opportunity here. And I think of the, the the great things that great presidents kind of left our nation, um, you know, and Look, if if Abraham Lincoln in the midst of the Civil War could also create land-grant colleges and the Trans-Pacific Railroad, the Transcontinental Railroad, I I just, I I think that it is in a moment of crisis, there is also a moment of opportunity to build something for the future. I think of FDR's work during the Great Depression with the Works, Works Progress Administration and all, all of the, uh, there's some amazing structures and edifices still left today from that or the, the Social Security Foundation that he put into place. And so great, great things can happen in a moment of crisis like this. Um, and, and infrastructure, you point out, like there's not a Republican bridge. There's not a Democratic bridge. There's not a, you know, we, we all need to drink clean water. Uh, we all want good functioning schools and broadband, no matter where we are. So this should be an issue that unites America. And, and I want to interrupt. I want to interrupt yeah. one second, simply because those two things, you, I think people just think of infrastructure as roads and bridges. They don't think about drinking water. They don't think about broadband. They don't think about other things that we use in our daily lives, whether it's personal or or professional or both. Um, you know, is being under that umbrella of infrastructure. I'm so glad you pointed those out because I know there are people watching or listening today that are saying, "Ha, huh, oh yeah. Right, that's exactly right. Because, you know, yes to uh, public transit and buses and subways, but not everybody lives in an urban area. Right. But everybody does need broadband. Everybody needs right. public schools. Everybody needs good ridges, bridges and roads. We need good ports to export our products, whether they're grain from the heartland or automobiles from Michigan. We need all of this, and this is all infrastructure. And as you pointed out, Leslie, we, we have not, we have underinvested in this. We are far behind every other industrialized economy in the world 
basically. It's embarrassing. It yes. really is embarrassing. And so we have this profound opportunity to do this. And yes, it costs money. It, it absolutely costs money. But there's never been a better time to borrow. Uh, we have borrowed for far worse things or far less productive things than this. And the return to America is profound. In the immediate term, you know, you need factories to make that broadband equipment or those bricks that goes into school or the uh, high tension wires that go into an energy grid or the steel uh, that goes into those bridges or the rebar that goes into those highways or the concrete. Then you need workers to install all of it, those constructions and, and building trades jobs. And then the return that you get as a citizen is that you have an efficiently operating system. It makes our economy more productive, more efficient. Uh, we spend less time commuting in the car sitting in LA. I, you know, it takes 30 minutes to get everywhere, right? And so you, you have more time to enjoy the things you want to do or to be productive at work. And it is possible through those investments. I think we have a great opportunity to do it and we have to seize it. And the last part of that is investing in our energy future as well mm -hmm. and transitioning us from a former dependence on foreign oil to a brighter future with homegrown renewable energy, solar panels made in America, windmills made in America, uh, and electric vehicles made in America that will that will get us through this century and position us once again as a leader in all of this, which is, which is exactly where we should be. We should not be a follower in this or a naysayer, we should be a we should be leading the way for the, for the world. We know how to do this. Uh, it does take some public investment uh, to unleash that private sector ingenuity and, and to pr give some job opportunities. Uh, but we can get this done. Um, and I I like the ambition of the president's plan. I'm glad he is aiming high, and I hope that we can get. Republicans to yes on this, because in another world, <laughs> if it were another president, they would happily support this. So we should not let party politics stand in the way of monumental progress that we can achieve. Absolutely. And speaking of that, how likely do you think it is? I'm going to throw two things at you here. Um, you know, it, it's going to pass the House. I mean, Democrats have a majority in the House. Now, although Democrats have a majority in the Senate, it's a very, very slim majority. Well, it's not a majority, it's a tie, right? And then you have people like Joe Manchin who live in a state like West Virginia, where a lot of his constituents are coal, coal yeah. workers, coal miners, um, coal-minded people. So two, uh, does Joe Manchin become a Republican on this kind of stuff? And do we end up with that same cog in the wheel? That's one. Two, uh, two would be, um, how do we get the message that this is not a job killer? Because when, you know, we do away with jobs of the old with renewable energy sources, we have new jobs, but they're cleaner and greener jobs going forward. Yeah. So, you know, so those two, you know, will, will Man Joe Manchin on something like this be a problem? And then secondly, uh, the jobs, because there is a lot of there are a lot of people out there that say it's going to kill jobs. It's a job killer. And it's like, no, it's a job creator. Yeah. First on Joe Manchin, and obviously we need to watch what he does or what others are on, on a lot of different issues. Joe Manchin has said some very encouraging things about infrastructure investment. He said two, three, four trillion dollars. I think I could get there. You know, I was like, OK, all right, we can we can work with that, certainly, because in West Virginia, they depend on infrastructure as well. And so I think he's very open to that. 
With respect to the clean energy jobs, I think he also recognizes that from a cost competitiveness standpoint, coal is declining and has been declining for a while. And to look to the future, you also you can you know, you can do wind in West Virginia, you can do solar in West Virginia. And the key thing here is if we are trading coal for some for for uh, for solar panels that are made in China, that is not a good trade off for West Virginians. If we're making it in America, if we're making it in West Virginia, that is something that I think Joe Manchin can get get behind and we can get to yes. Absolutely. Oh, Scott, you're becoming so good with our time cues. Not that you weren't before. You're just like, I mean, you could do your own show. We'll be back. I'm Leslie Marshall. Scott Paul's our guest. Stick around. Quick break. Back with him. Back with you right after this. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Radio, on stream, on podcast, watching us on Periscope, on Twitter, Facebook Live, YouTube Live, whichever way you get the show, we appreciate your support. Thank you uh, very much. As I mentioned, I'm talking to Scott Paul, and uh, Scott is the president of the AAM, the Alliance for American Manufacturing. Please go to their website during the next break, AmericanManufacturing.org. Follow AAM at Keep It Made in USA and follow Scott at Scott Paul AAM. Scott, thank you for holding. Welcome back. Um, I want to move into something that you and I have talked about before in the last presidency, especially I think it was back in March when um, COVID started to become a reality and our lives started to change. Um, and we really didn't know for, for how long. And there was question about the Defense uh, Production Act. And there were calls, and, and not just from people outside of Trump's party, but even within, uh, for Trump to invoke that. Well, President Joe Biden now has invoked the Defense Production Act. And you said... Countless American manufacturers and workers stepped up when COVID-19 hit by switching their production lines to make desperately needed PPE and other critical supplies. But their efforts only went so far because the previous administration failed to adequately use the Defense Production Act and enact a coordinated response to the pandemic. As a result, we're still seeing PPE shortages. And you go on to say, I'm heartened to see President Joe Biden move to use the DPA. On his first full day in office to address the gaps, it's time to secure our supply chain and create a strong manufacturing base right here in the United States so we can better respond to the next crisis. I know American workers and manufacturers are ready and willing to step up to the plate. Well said, Scott. I agree. couple of things here. Um, we already have a 200-page plan from Joe Biden on how to fight COVID. Of course, there are people out there that are saying that, you know, oh, it's not revolutionary and, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, 100 million vaccinations would eventually have come about with the last administration. Um, but I believe this is a game changer. I think you do, too. And can you tell our listeners why? Yeah, absolutely. Um, first of all, it's nice to have a plan, uh, you know, rather than operating on denial, fiction, uh, blame, um, you know, and the fact that, you know, last March we were saying we should invoke the Defense Production Act. And and I will say, you know, Trump did, but he did it sporadically. He did it vindictively. He did it kind of ineffectually and there wasn't any sustained commitment and left the, the distribution side to be just a complete and utter disaster and kind of the Wild West 
for everybody with lots of states and hospital systems competing against each other. I was just a terror. Absolutely. You couldn't design a worse system. It's like Lord of the Flies and letting a bunch of 12 year old boys decide where things should go. It's just a huge mistake. You need adult leadership. And, and so that's what I think one of the things that the, the Biden plan provides is that and the, the tools under the Defense Production Act. And I'll just explain this very briefly. is like the DPA was put into place during the Korean War so that we wouldn't run out of stuff we needed to keep our country secure, whether it's missiles or parts for things or, or whatever. And so it's been in the law. Um, it, it's been it, it's regularly invoked, although without fanfare, because if the Defense Department needs a part for something, but a manufacturer says, well, I have 10 other orders ahead of you. The Defense Department can say, no, no, we need to move that up. We need to be at the front of the line because we desperately need this for the security of the United States. And so that's that's usually how it gets invoked right now. But but how it can be invoked and should be invoked during this crisis is, is in a couple of different ways. First of all, um, if there are shortages in, say, like N95 masks or face shields or uh, or syringes or glass vials for vaccines, um, and there are private sector manufacturers in the United States, but they're like, oh, we've got to fulfill this contract that we have, you know, the you know for this, uh, you know, the, the 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 government can step in and say, no, wait, 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 we need this for our public health security right away, and so you need to you need to put us at the front of the line. So number one, it can get you to the front of the line. Number two, can do an assessment of what our capacity is. Like, do we literally have enough capacity to make these syringes in the United States now? And if we don't, can we convert some other facilities uh, to do that? And if we need to do that, is there some money available to help that manufacturer do that conversion? Okay. And then the, the other thing that the Defense Production Act can do is also prevent kind of that price gouging or hoarding or that competition mm -hmm. that you saw and say, we're going to have an orderly distribution of this. And it's not going to based on, based, pardon my French, on how much you kiss the president's butt, which I think is how it worked for a good part of last year. But where is the need? Where do we perceive the need to be going? Uh, and so it's an actual plan, like, like a business would do it, but uh, in this context of a massive public health emergency that we have. So it's long overdue. And I will just say, Leslie, it is a very small piece of this overall plan that the administration has to try to get our country back on the feet, uh, back on our feet and back on the other side of this pandemic uh, in a way where we minimize deaths and that, w that we, can, we can get on with daily life as soon as possible, but it will require some sacrifice from us all. Um, and it will continue to require the vigilance of American manufacturers and workers, particularly those that are making uh, the PPE and the other necessary medical equipment that's going to help keep our country safe. It, it does it create, can it create jobs? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I guess here's how, like, you know, there were very, very few N95 mask makers in the United States before this. There's 3M, there was Honeywell. And um, and and out of this, for instance, we want to diversify that supply. That's not enough. That's that, you know, we got two. You, you know, you want anybody who knows economics know you want more than two people in that space yes. making massive quantities of stuff. You need more competition. You need more diversity of supply. And right. if we know if we're going to be creating a national stockpile as well, that gives other manufacturers a signal to come into the market to enter it, to make those investments and to scale up 
that will create jobs. Same with supply chains. We want to bring more of these critical medicines of, of these materials back to the United States so that if we need to make hundreds of millions of glass vials as we do right now, uh, that we have the capacity and we're not dependent on a couple of factories in Asia to do that for us. And also and, to your point, when you have that factory that has that contract and then you, you have now this executive order from the president um, and, you know, and, and that puts you to the front of the line, you might say, well, I still want to get this done. I'm going to hire back some of those people I laid off or I'm going right. to hire more people. Uh, because now I have, you know, this kind, I have more than one contract and this has to be fulfilled first, but I don't want to lose my customers, you yeah. know, with this contract. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So that, that's interesting. Yeah, that's exactly right. And just the last point on this, because some people say, well, that's big government telling the private sector what to do. Yeah. It's like, well, there's a reason why we have government. It's to protect our national security. That's why we don't have private sector firms doing it. But the Biden administration has been, made it very clear that they're going to work with businesses first and they're not going to be vindictive like the Trump administration, wow. you know, and, and try to punish folks. But it's like, let's see if we can work this out. And if not, yes, we will invoke this power. Um, and, and make sure that we're meeting the health security needs of, of our country right now. Yeah, yeah I think a lot, I think there are a lot of people out there who just felt that was a, a no brainer, you know, in the grand scheme of this crisis of this pandemic. So I agree with you. I'm glad it's being done. Um, you know, you and I talked during the Trump administration about American manufacturing, what he was doing for it. Joe Biden's only been president in a couple of days. Um, so let's look back over the past uh, four years, okay? Um, Donald Trump promised an industrial resurgence when he entered office four years ago. Um, did he succeed or fail in that promise? Uh, did he succeed or fail to revive American factories and American manufacturing? Can we take a look back at what Donald Trump did and didn't do, did and did not accomplish for, for American manufacturing in the past four years? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it is important as much as we want to close the book on four years. And believe me, I do. Um, but but just to to understand what happened. So particularly if we're having conversations with folks who may be Trump supporters, that there's a, a shared set of facts here. And, and that's why I wrote the piece that you're referring to as well, because Trump did make a lot of promises, a lot of commitments uh, about American manufacturing, about fact, factory jobs. And it is also true that he took actions. He did. He'd be installed some tariffs. Uh, he, you know, he did a big corporate tax cut. Wall Street got most of those, but, but he did some things and you have to look, was it effective? And so uh, the short answer to the question is, is, is Trump didn't revive factories. There was an uptick his first two years. Uh, but by the way, the, 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 the last four years of the Obama administration, we had seen over 360,000 manufacturing jobs created. So it's not like there weren't being manufacturing jobs created before there were. Um, but then it, it uh, stopped in 2019, um, partly because uh, we had, uh, it, you know, the, the, the sugar rush of the tax cut ran out for these manufacturers. Um, and and the, the, the uncertainty created by the tariffs caused a lot of firms not to invest in the future. And that had uh, that, 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 that caused some issues as well. Uh, and so and then we lost a lot of manufacturing jobs, obviously, during this pandemic. So we're basically where we started uh, at the beginning of the Trump administration. Hold, and hold that thought. We're going to take a quick break. I want you to talk about uh, that more, um, not just about those numbers and the perception uh, versus the reality. Uh, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about tariffs and, and trade. And we're going to talk a bit about China. Don't go away. I'm Leslie Marshall. He's Scott Paul back with us right after this.
Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. back talking with Scott Hall, president of the AAM, the Alliance for American Manufacturing. Uh, follow them on Twitter at Keep It Made in USA. Also follow Scott at Scott Paul AAM and go to their website, AmericanManufacturing.org. Scott, thank you for holding. Welcome back. We were talking about what Donald Trump, you entitled your piece, What Did Donald Trump Accomplish for American Manufacturing? And we were talking about that. You spoke about numbers and you said there are fewer people working in manufacturing today than when Trump became president back in 2017. And that during the Obama presidency, you mentioned the last four years of his presidency alone, that 386,000 manufacturing uh, jobs uh, were uh, added despite the criticism of Obama with regard to job growth and manufacturing uh, by Trump. Uh, so let's get back to what you were saying. Sorry, we had run out of time. We had to take a quick break. Thanks for holding a welcome back. Please continue. Sure, Leslie, and, and thanks. And again, this isn't just a pile on Trump, but it's to make sure that everybody has a common set of facts. Uh, and it's not just based on rhetoric or political outlook. Uh, and it's based on some objective criteria, which is also how we graded Barack Obama and how we will look at Joe Biden uh, for, for the next four or, or eight years as well. And so as we discussed, uh, job creation uh, did peak up in the first two years of, of Trump's administrations, but then leveled off and, and came plummeting down. So we're, we're uh, basically, we, it's been a wash over the last four years. Now the trade and, deficit, and why did that happen, Scott? So that people understand yeah, why. Yeah. So the so so in 2019, even before the pandemic, the American economy, the manufacturing economy was slowing down. A lot of uncertainty was created by the tariffs. I look. I supported the tariffs. I thought they were good to gain leverage, but it was clear to Wall Street and the Main Street there was no game plan after those. Like, what are you going to do? That slowed down a lot of investment. Um, as well, and the, the kind of the stimulus from the tax cut for, for big corporations ran out as well. And so manufacturing literally kind of ran out of gas. And then during the pandemic, it plummeted because, you know, there were all sorts of demand shocks. I mean, people weren't buying automobiles at first or, you know, anything <laughs> except for toilet paper, right? And uh, paper towels and, and canned soup and things like that. And so you had this big shock in manufacturing. There were some restriction, lockdown restrictions put into place, but in most places, manufacturers were considered essential workers. Um, but you you still see that today, that there are more than half a million Americans who in factories who lost their jobs at the beginning of the pandemic who still don't have them. Um, and, and that's a challenge. And the reason why I raise that is, is because of this other trade issue. So at the time, at the same time, it's not like we haven't been buying stuff. We have. I mean, Americans have been buying stuff like off of Amazon like crazy over the last 10 months. The problem is virtually all of it is imported. And so our trade- China, right? Exactly. And so our trade deficit has skyrocketed. It is the, the, the essentially the, about the highest it's ever been. Um, and so the, the three highest trade deficits that we will have in US history will all have occurred on Donald Trump's watch. Really? 2018, 2019, and okay. 2020. The reason, and, the reason I say that is yeah. because, you know, there is this perception, and this doesn't always go just to Democrat, Republican, blue, yeah. red, left, right, um, you know, that Trump was so tough on China and that Trump stood up to China, like you know, unlike other presidents. 
Um, you know, but you write in your piece, Trump's failure to establish a competitive dollar or to leverage tariffs for real change has already weakened fa- factory job growth heading into the COVID-19 pandemic, as you mentioned. Yeah. His disastrous stewardship of the government's pandemic response and its sputtering attempt to end economic recovery contributed to a steep drop of 543,000 jobs in manufacturing since February 2020, which obviously just wipes out any gains that were made during his presidency. There are people that are concerned about Joe Biden with China. Are you? I'm not concerned about Joe Biden and and China. And I I, I do think that the Biden team, uh, and I know his trade people, just as I knew Trump's trade people, okay? Like I knew those, I knew Bob Lighthizer, I knew Peter Navarro, I knew Wilbur Ross, uh, I knew other other personalities in the Trump administration. I know the people coming in to do this work for, for Biden. They're committed to trade enforcement with China. And it may sound different, it may look different, but I think they have a deep understanding of what the challenges are and perhaps a deeper understanding that, that they don't just want a public relations victory where th- their president can sit down and sign something uh, and say, you know, mission accomplished but that we see the structural change that we need. And, and I think this is so important, Leslie, that we are making ourselves more competitive so that we have more opportunities here and we're attracting businesses here because tariffs alone aren't gonna do it. We need to make sure that we have workforce training, that we have uh, an investment in innovation, that we have a good and functioning infrastructure. Uh, and so all of that will contribute uh, to boosting manufacturing jobs if we do this the right way. And I think Biden will hold Trump account, will hold China accountable on a broader array of issues than Trump was willing to, to. like the, 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 the situation with the Uyghurs. Yes, they declared that a genocide on the very last day of the administration, but they had been utterly silent about it for the, for the last three or four years that it had been going along. I think that's going to be a, a concern that Biden has, like how China is treating uh, democratic activists in Hong Kong and how it's treating yes. the, the, the Uyghur and, and Muslims. That's a, and it's interesting you bring that up, Scott, and I'm glad you did, because it's a balancing act, you know, because yes. technically the United States could say, we're not going to deal with you at all, but we right. really can't. I mean, there right. is a reality. We really can't. Sadly, we make products over there. Sadly, there are products we don't make that we get from them, and there are products that they make that nobody else does. So, so let's talk about trade and specifically yeah. something you and I have talked about many times, which is the trade deficit. Trump would rail about the sizes you wrote in your piece when he was a candidate about the size of the trade deficit. And you said, yet yeah, somehow he managed to make it worse. Do you think that Joe Biden's Buy American push, and he's only been in office two days, and he touched upon it a few times in running, well, a number of times, um, can that make a difference in this U.S. trade deficit if people buying on Amazon are buying from American manufacturers, products that are made by American manufacturers. And if 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 people who are out there in manufacturing, the CEOs of these large corporations see that shift in consumerism, that they'll be like, hmm, I'm going to stop making stuff in China, Bangladesh, Taiwan and Mexico. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And so I think there's a couple of things that can contribute to growth in manufacturing jobs here and to a reduction in that trade deficit. One is obviously we need to export more. And, and that's something that declined rapidly is that there were all, all this retaliation other countries had against the, the Trump tariffs uh, did result in a decline in our exports. And just oddly, all the chaos that Trump produced meant that people 
flocked to the dollar as an investment and it raised the value of the dollar, which sounds great, right? And, and it is great if you're a, a traveler going to Paris, you're like, you're happy to have a strong dollar. But if you're an exporter, it's an additional barrier to getting your products sold overseas because it's more expensive than it otherwise would be. And so I think that, you know, I, I think that Biden's team, Janet Yellen and everybody else, has a deep understanding of how we need to boost exports, how we need to also have real incentives to reshore work and not the the the, the phony kind of Trump approach, uh, and how we can make our economy more broadly competitive through investing in our workforce, investing in our innovation, investing in our infrastructure. I think that will be helpful uh, in, in doing this. And if we are transitioning to electric vehicles, yes, by the way, we should make sure that they're made in America. And, and that's going to present a lot of opportunities for manufacturing workers uh, ac across our country if we do it right. And we can export those to other countries as well. So I, I do, I'm hopeful. And there's a lot of things that go into if the trade deficit goes up or goes down. But the fact that Trump cared about it so much and left it worse says mm. a lot. Is a lot of rhetoric, um, very few results at the end of the day for American manufacturing. Yeah, very true. Something that he did and that you talked about uh, in in your your piece, um, you said critics of this analysis will, and we're talking about what we just did, uh, undoubtedly note that at least Trump took action. He imposed tariffs on some imported steel. And then you talk about he renegotiated NAFTA and withdrew from entering the Trans-Pacific Partnership Trade Agreement. Um, let, let's talk about that. The renegotiation of NAFTA how did that impact American manufacturing and specifically the American manufacturing worker? And and how do you see that impacting going forward? Because there are some people, I think Joe Biden, that, that even felt that it made it a better deal. Yeah. Yeah. I think there was broad agreement that NAFTA needed to be renegotiated. And I think that um, Trump started the process. Nancy Pelosi finished it, is how I will put this, to get it over the finish line, made it a lot more worker friendly. And it's a good thing that there will be champions of workers who are overseeing this, the monitoring of this agreement, because we want to make sure that workers in Mexico are being treated well and that we have balanced trade. And I think that that will be a possibility uh, in all of this. So I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. So again, but but Trump started this. It was Nancy Pelosi who, who had- I, I love that. I'm going to, I'm going to, I think I'm going to- finish that as well. Yeah. 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 No, I, I, I definitely love, you know, we have less than 60 seconds left. Last word, Scott, what do you want to leave people with today? We've covered a lot of ground. We have a lot more to cover very quickly in a sentence or two. You bet. So let's close the book on the four years of Donald Trump and let's look ahead. And I think there's a lot to be excited about for the Build Back Better plan and how that can contribute to the middle class and a more sustainable future for American families. And I think it's something that can attract broad bipartisan support, particularly if Republicans don't let politics get in the way, because there's a lot of support for rebuilding America. Uh, Absolutely. And we're ready to get it done. We're looking forward to working with this administration to do it. Absolutely. Awesome. Scott Paul, follow him on Twitter at ScottPaulAAM. Follow the AAM at Keep It Made in USA. And check out the website, AmericanManufacturing.org. Scott, always a pleasure. Love you, buddy. And thank you for watching and listening to the program today. And thanks to Marky Mark Grimaldi, our executive producer. Without him, none of this is possible. You heard that safe drivers get rewarded with Snapshot from Progressive, so you went online to check it out. But then you saw an ad for a vintage baseball cap, and now you find yourself checking the stats of that team's second baseman in 97, wondering why his stolen base total dropped after his rookie season. 
wonder how much his rookie card is worth. Yes, they said it was easy to save money with Snapshot from Progressive, but they forgot about the rest of the Internet. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Snapshot not available in California, North Carolina, or from all agents. Better sleep means a better you. That's why Mattress Firm came up with the Rest Assured Promise, featuring the best mattresses from America's best mattress brands. Like the Temper Breeze Collection, available now, with a $300 instant gift good towards your choice of sleep accessories. Visit with our sleep experts in-store, online, or by phone to find the right bed for you. Only at Mattress Firm, America's number one Tempur-Pedic retailer. Offer valid with qualifying purchase. Restrictions apply. Valid at participating locations only. For offer details, visit mattressfirm.com sale.